Good morning. Greet each of you in Jesus' name. Like a little bit of your help here. Um, let me actually maybe find a marker before I get started. That way I don't have to. Glad for each one of you and glad you're here. So first question, when a, a company comes out with something new, something valuable, something every, seems like most everyone wants the benefit of, yet not everybody either can or is willing to pay the price, do you know what happens next? Anybody tell me? So there's something that's fairly valuable, fairly expensive, maybe we would say, if we're talking about a product. And most people would be glad to have one, and uh, yet maybe they can't afford it or the market's tight. What happens? Do you know? Okay. Somebody tries to duplicate it and sell something similar for cheaper. It happens all the time. I don't know. Um, think in the U.S. here with uh, Consumer Protection Agency, there's a little bit of protection from it, uh, whereas in some other countries it's maybe a bit worse. Um, what do you call something that, what do you call the, that inferior product, I guess we'll say? Imitation or a knockoff would be another word we use. So uh, in this, uh, well, actually, maybe I'll wait a minute. So I want you to think about uh, that. You know, some years ago, I was trying to buy my wife a birthday present, and I wanted to get her something really good, but I wanted a really good deal on it. So I don't know uh, where you go when you want something like that. So I went on uh, Amazon. I think this, in this case it was a pair of uh, Apple AirPods that I was trying to get for her. And those of you not know me well may be sort of surprised that I bought that off of Amazon, but I did one time. Uh, and so I went and bought AirPods. It said they were AirPods. Uh, it didn't say they were Apple AirPods, but it said they were AirPods. So I bought, bought them and got them. And like, these things are weird. There's something odd about them. They looked very similar. The case was shaped the same. The general appearance of the AirPod was the same, but they didn't pair right with the phone, and the sound was goofy. Um, I'm not actually sure what happened to those things. Uh, they were real discouraging. Um, so I, th I went back and looked, and here they had shipped from overseas, trying to run other countries down, but they had come from overseas. And um, on top of that, they very carefully in the description as I looked actually did not say they were Apple AirPods. It just said they were Air Space Pods, which was not copyrighted, I guess. Um, and, you know, that's disgusting. I don't know about you, but for me, it's probably ensured that generally when I buy products, I try to go to where I'm actually getting what I thought I was getting. For myself, I'm willing to pay a bit more and make sure I have what I actually thought I had. So I'm thinking about this. The thing of wanting something good, something quality, yet still wanting a good deal on it. And so sometimes you end up with, end up with something other than what you really wanted. And it's perhaps bad enough when you're buying products, but I had a question for myself is that do I do this in other possibly even more important areas of my life? Where I want a good result, I want truth, 
Yet the price seems a bit high, so I shop around a little bit, so to speak. Find something that seems to fit. So it looks like it'll do. And so therefore, I settle for something less. How many of you are familiar with the town of Hadleyburg? Anybody know about Hadleyburg? Oh, come on. Uh, you think you do, are? I don't know. To me, it sounded like a place in Pennsylvania, but we have some visitors from Pennsylvania, so maybe we shouldn't say that. So, no, it wasn't. Uh, say that totally in lightness. Um, Hadleyburg. Well, have y'all ever heard of Mark Twain? Actual Samuel Clemens, he wrote about a town of Hadleyburg. Does that ring any bells for anybody? So I don't know that I would tell you a lot about Hadleyburg right now, and I'm not necessarily promoting Mr. Twain's writings, but uh, he had a point in this one, I think, more than some. That man, when he got a notion to be sarcastic, he could really take it to great levels, and so Hadleyburg is somewhat that. Hadleyburg the Incorruptible is what uh, I think the title of it was. So it was, uh, of course, a fictitious town, or maybe not so fictitious, I'm not exactly sure. Um, known far and wide for its incorruptibility, especially when it came to just honest business dealings, just honest. And almost everybody in Hadleyburg was extremely proud about Hadleyburg's reputation for honesty and incorruptibility. It was just amazing. And all the surrounding towns envied Hadleyburg's reputation. And you came from Hadleyburg, people just trusted you because you were incorruptible, so to speak. So think about those various, maybe that seems like loose ends to you. Now I want to ask you something completely different. And uh, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Maybe I'll uh, put the Greek word on here. Y'all should know what a Christian is, right? I was hoping I had a fair amount here this morning. So you want to tell me real quick what a Christian is? Anyone? Someone who lo a little Christ. Okay, thanks. Some more. A life dedicated to Christ. Thank you. Any more? I'm sorry. Okay, bought back by Christ. Thank you. Anything more? An imitation of Christ. Any more? Why don't you open your Bibles to Acts 11? Interestingly enough, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. And of all things, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, never used the word in his writings. I think about that. Uh, it's twice in Acts. Once the one I want to look here in Acts 11. Later on, uh, it's used another time in relation. Uh, 
in Acts 26, 28, and then also 1 Peter 4, 16. So let's look at Acts 11, verse 25 through 26. A little bit of uh, background here before I read these verses. Is Barnabas had been sent from Jerusalem because the church at Jerusalem heard about the church at Antioch. I guess you could say the reputation, how they were seeking to live for Christ. And when Barnabas arrived, he'd been there some time, it seems like. Then he went and decided that it'd be a good place to find Saul, or later Paul, and bring him to this church, to this work. So, let's uh, Acts 11, verse 25. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Okay, now what's interesting, um, if you look at that Greek word, uh, Christians would be Christianos, which is very similar to Spanish um, for Christian. Uh, and it comes, basically, the Greek word for Christ is this, Christos. And so the ending, basically, is just a different ending, and that ending means a follower of, basically, would be how we would translate it, a follower of Christ. So I find it very fascinating, this church at Antioch, and I wish, I would love, and I think maybe we are, I'm not trying to say it's negative sense, but wouldn't it be amazing if, to be in Strawberry, and I don't know, I was trying to think how long it took to travel from Antioch to Jerusalem, but it wasn't just real close, they didn't top in their car, you know, today, I don't know. Even mile-wise, it's not that far, but I'm guessing with the ship, at best, it was a couple days. So you're talking pretty far, likely. Uh, even by today's standards, it'd be a bit of a trip, and quite a trip years ago. So you have another church in another town hearing about this other church's reputation so much so that they send one of their leaders to, I guess, assist or bless this church, basically. doesn't sound like there was a lot of communication, but Barnabas was sent, and he comes... And he's so impressed that he tries to find uh, this, this, goes and finds Saul, fairly new convert that was on fire for Christ. Now, what's interesting, as I looked at this some more, is not only did the church at Antioch have a reputation that reached in Christian circles, if you will, to Jerusalem, they also had a testimony at home, which was probably even more important, because it says it was first in Antioch that they were called followers of Christ. And to me, that's a, a bit of an intriguing thought. How amazing is that? If my neighbor was looking for a way to describe me to another neighbor that didn't know me, would he come up with saying that Joe follows Christ? Or how about your neighbor? If somebody was looking for a way to describe you, and it's like, they're just different. They... You know, around here, there's exp uh, expressions like they'll take the shirt off the back for you and things like that. Uh, and, you know, that may all be good and fine. I hope we help each other as friends. But would anybody de describe me, describe you as a follower of Christ? Just no other way to explain that person and their actions. And I don't want to necessarily put this in a negative, but, you know, so often in dealing with the public... I hear terms like, and referring to people I go to church with or other groups, they're good people. They're great business people. They're good workers. 
And where those are based on a life lived for Christ, I can appreciate them. Please understand me. At the same time, I wonder, do we sometimes, am I sometimes missing something when the people I work with and for simply know me as a good business person, as a hard worker? How about, how can I somehow live my life in such a way that as they relate to me, they would say, now there was a follower of Christ. There's a billboard, and uh, CAM has a billboard there in Jonesboro, somewhat to the, this side of town, but faces the other way. It says, uh, genuine Christians forgive. Genuine Christians forgive. Uh, that's a good billboard. It doesn't say much, but it says a lot in a few words. And I guess I wanted to focus more on the first part of it. I'll possibly bring up the last part a little bit. But genuine Christians. If I talk about genuine Christians, what does that indicate? That there's authentic, if you can use that word, Christians, and some that aren't. So I decided to use the word authentic. And sometimes, you probably have seen this, maybe the first best illustration that came to my mind is authentic and then a certain type of restaurant whether it's Mexican or Thai or Chinese or whatever it would be, authentic. Now, here's what's interesting is I've been to probably literally dozens of Mexican restaurants in the U.S., and I've also been to quite a few in Mexico, and they're a slight bit different, even though the Mexican restaurants here would like to say they're authentic. Uh, sometimes they are authentic in their music, and they may be somewhat authentic in that the types of food they serve. You can probably usually find rice and beans if you want it, for example. At the same time, the way they serve them, uh, I think my daughters are a little bit disappointed. We had been at a, here over Thanksgiving when we were there with my brother and parents in Mexico. We took them, went with them to a, a real Mexican restaurant, right, in Mexico. And uh, we got, what was the problem, girls? We didn't get very many chips, did we? Is that one thing? And... Uh, that's one thing I think that just didn't get near the amount of chips we were used to here. Uh, then another thing that was funny is they wondered if I wanted agua. Uh, now, I know enough of um, Spanish to know that agua is water, and I decided that was a safe thing. Um, you can also get Coke and such things that's fairly safe, but I said, yeah, I'd go with agua. Well, come to find out that, at least in that part of Mexico, agua doesn't mean agua. Uh, agua means anything that's not uh, carbonated. So basically a non-fizzy drink. And so he, want, he said agua con something, and I missed it. Well, here I got this terribly sweet grape juice stuff. stuff. So, you know, um, anyway, that was really authentic. It's not that I'm saying that you're getting cheated by going to Cave City or somewhere. They have good food. But at the same time, you probably have a little bit different experience if you go to Mexico and go to the real deal. So back to genuine Christians, to me, when we talk about genuine, it indicates that possibly there are those who are less than genuine. And I find it fascinating how this world is always trying to classify things. For example, I don't know if this Bible does, but I have a number of Bibles in my life that said genuine leather, for example. Uh, they want you to know that it's real. So in thinking about being authentic and fakes, I'd like to, for us to think about this as Christians now. 
We all have marks that define who we are, marks of authenticity, if you will. I didn't bring one of those, but have you ever noticed how silver dollars have it? There's some other coins where they have a edge around it, that a rough edge, I'll just call it, lined edge. And part of the reason for that is to make it harder to forge them. It's quite, I guess it's quite difficult to make that edge from what I understand, at least part of it. And so they have come up with that way to try to prevent forgeries to help you understand the genuine. Uh, let's see, I had something here I did want to show you. Here we go. So make sure I get this done right. Okay, I've got two checks here. They're blank printable checks. Uh, if you were to pick one, which one would you want? That one? Why is that? The little square box is shining. Okay, good. Uh, I thought of putting my finger over it, but I thought that might be cheating. So, um, you know, it's funny is I uh, was going to copy one of these and uh, just to see if I could make such a good copy that you couldn't tell the difference. And my printers are so smart, they won't even copy the thing. Uh, I tried a couple different ones, and finally I took a good, really good picture of it and tried to print that, and they wouldn't print that either. So I just gave up. Uh, so I guess what I, if I could make a point out of those printers is it's pretty easy to actually today with technology, it's pretty easy to make a very realistic fake. Is that right? I have, uh, years ago, I had another printer that wasn't quite as smart, and it did. And I just, for fun, made me one. And basically, unless, if you could have found a paper that was exactly like, you could have not told the difference, I would say. Um, it's a little hard to find this quality of paper. But that one... That's an authentic, at least as far as I know, seems to be. Bill, and uh, so back to the checks. Other than, I don't know, I was looking, other than that little box, at least on the front side, I don't know if there's really any way to set, tell a difference. And by the way, I paid special for these checks because that they have that box on them because I thought if ever a fake check shows up, I can say I tried at least. Um, but really, probably for somebody that's fast going through the bank, fast doing uh, their work, it'd be pretty hard to see the difference, right? If I just copy it quick, print it, run it through. Um, they have some other safeguards, but it'd be pretty hard unless you're really awake and really watching your business. You wouldn't really see it. Uh, I don't think my teller this week would have caught it. It was funny. I was, did a deposit earlier this week, and I used a... I was doing a deposit at Arvis Bank in Jonesboro, and I had used a deposit slip from Cave City Bank in, in uh, Strawberry, and uh, that poor teller, uh, he uh, ran the whole thing, and he just couldn't get it to go. And so finally he got another teller over there. And anyways, I think he would have missed this. Uh, I finally told him I, he was over. I said, hey, I know exactly what happened. I said, don't, you know, I can fix you up here. But authentic, it can appear very similar. And thinking about Christians... Is it always evident who is the real Christian and who isn't? Do you have a little shiny box on you if you're genuine? How do you tell? So I'd like to think about that a bit. In this, maybe I should warn you that this should not be an education or exercise in how to judge others. There's a place to, the Bible does tell us, by their fruits you shall know them. But I especially like for this to, 
in my case, to focus on myself. What about me? Is it, so, it something I want to carefully consider? Am I authentic or am I a fake? So, in thinking of just broad humanity, there are those who make no Christian profession whatsoever, and they're not part of our consideration today, right? We're not talking about atheists, people who don't know God. We're talking today about people, if you would ask them, are you a Christian? They would say yes. That's the kind of person we're talking about. So the rest we can dismiss. So in that group of those who would call themselves Christians, I will suggest we have, thankfully, authentic Christians, right? The real, the genuine article. Then we have the fake. And I thought maybe for, to help us understand some things, I would break the fake into two categories. The one being the hypocrites. And to some degree, there's overlap here, but I'm going to describe the hypocrites as those who deliberately use the guise of being a Christian to serve themselves, and they know it, at least to some extent. Make sense? Uh, where there's knowledge that they're not really right, but they choose to live that way. Uh, then I also, I don't know, as I think and I've observed people, I think there's the deceived. There are those who, you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say yes. And yet... If you look at the fruit of their life, it lets some doubt. And I don't say this to unsettle anyone this morning. But I would like to maybe ask the Spirit to just talk to each of our hearts. Because I think there's a real danger for each one of us to be in one of those fake categories. And maybe the deceived is almost harder to recognize in yourself. So let's think about those. So we're going to have the, the authentic, the deceived, and the hypocrites. Okay, what are some of the basic marks of each of these? What are some distinguishing features that these have? Okay, can you all just real quick tell me, what, what are some ways you could fairly easily tell an authentic Christian from another? Now I've had time to think about this. I'll give you mine. But I was curious what you would have. Can we have at least four or five? I'm sorry? Okay, still live for God anymore? By their love, thank you. Okay. By fruit, some more. Forgive, okay, going back to the cam billboard, good. Any more? Okay. Thanks. Good. Uh, you covered very well. Okay, so let's maybe skip the deceive for the minute. What are some ways, what are some marks of a hypocrite? Christian now I'm talking about, not, not a fake pilot or anything, but a fake Christian. How, what's uh, somebody that knows to some degree they're not doing right, but they're using it? Can you give me any definition of those? Some things that would stand out. Defensive, thank you. Okay, a different, uh, yeah, different conversation, different demeanor depending who they're with. Some more? Okay, sort of goes with the defensive, but absolutely, always find somebody else to blame. Some more? Okay, 
pick and choose what they want, what they believe. Any more? See if we're going to come up with one more. Okay, exactly. Thank you. Um, let me see. Well, why don't I just put some of mine? They say and do not. Uh, some of this is good overlap. Y'all did really well. They want recognition. See, I wish my memory would work better. Um, legalistic, concerned about the outward. Uh, how can I do that quick? Outward focus. I'll break some of these down a bit more then. Um, and critical. Like I said, there's probably some overlap here between the others. Now, a deceived person, how would you tell whether a person is deceived or not? Or what are some, yes, marks of a deception? Harder? I'll get you started. I feel one is somebody trying to earn their salvation. Now, does that get you any? Any others? I'll put another one up, self-righteous. Oops, I think I got it. Uh, I'll just give you my list so we can keep moving. Weak in the word, heavy on feeling is what I have. I'm not quite sure I should write that all out, but. And uh, let's see, I think I had one last one. They trust in themselves. And again, I want to uh, break that down. Maybe I should go uh, back on the authentic. Let's just do they love like Jesus. Obedience or obey. Humble. Thankful. I could have really made a long list here. I probably went too long the way it is. Let's see. I think I have one more here. Um, oh, and they forgive is one I had because of what that mentioned earlier. There was another one I wanted to put up here. Um, I'll just put it down here even though I might talk about it for surrender okay I'll give us a little bit to work, talk about here okay open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23 here Christ actually gives us I feel about a definitive definition of a hypocrite Matthew chapter 23 
Uh, some of you look a little sleepy. Why don't everybody stand up for a bit? So let's look at Matthew 23. I'd be great to read all of this. I don't know. I might pick and choose a few verses. Well, the first one is they say and do not. A hypocrite tells others to do things, but he doesn't do. Let's look at verse 3. Uh, Christ talking, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Then he tells all, therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe. In other words, he recognized their authority. That observe and do, but do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. I see in a hypocrite, I see a person who knows and even possibly teaches truth, but they twist the practice of truth from a thing of obedience to a thing of self, Right? It's not about actually pleasing God. It's about doing what I want to do under the guise of living for God. Okay, the next one is, they go for recognition and show, verse 5 through 7. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, or in the markets. And to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They go for recognition and show. Now, what's interesting is probably most of these you could actually turn around for an authentic Christian, right? An authentic Christian, for example, would be more willing to do than to say. It's okay to say, but he's willing to do. An authentic Christian goes for quiet obedience over recognition and show. Okay, you can be seated again. See if that can help you. Uh, uh, the next one, three. A hypocrite is legalistic in thought and practice. Maybe that seems strange, but read from verse 13 through 24. That's my conclusion. I'll read just a little bit. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering in to go. He goes on and uh, expands on that. Um, then he goes on how they would swear by the gold on the temple instead of the temple and all that messed up things, how they would uh, cheat a widow to say a prayer. They're legalistic in thought and practice. They were very, they said, oh, if you made a commitment or in their case swore by this, it wasn't a big deal. But if you swore by this, it was a really big deal. And he says, you were actually counting the smaller thing more important than the real item. And uh, think about that for a minute. They worship the form while excusing self. Four, they are overly concerned about the outward while they neglect the inside. Uh, we see that in 25 to 28. Uh, maybe we'll read that. Verses 25, 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within you are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are, are within full of dead men's bones and of uncleanness. Now let's just stop a minute and think about this. Do I have any problem with any of these? I think I must. Thinking about the first one, I'll tell you something that I've often noticed as a parent. And I'm a little afraid maybe I taught it, I didn't mean to. But it's amazing to me how a child can be told over and over 
and it seems they forget when you remind them about something. I forgot. Yet as soon as a sibling does that thing, all of a sudden the truth comes forth that they didn't totally forget. And I would like to think it's, uh, what, under 16 problem. Uh, that would be a little safe for me to say. But they say and do not. You know, friends, sometimes I don't want to be that way, and I'm asking God to help me, but I think it's a temptation for me as well to say, to maybe give good counsel, to maybe share truth possibly to those that ask. But when my opportunity comes to live out that truth, it's a little bit different. I have a good reason. Going for show and recognition. Now, I don't know. don't know if Dan and Leanne and their family have found this out about Mennonite culture, but we're very humble, aren't we? We can always stand up here and say how somebody else could do a better job. We can make a meal for somebody and say, oh, it wasn't much. On and on, we have all our nice little cultural quirks of trying to minimize. So, that's great. I'm not necessarily running that down. At the same time, it's fascinating that in that same culture, I've found people that were terribly hurt, including myself when they weren't recognized for a sacrifice they made. Isn't that odd? Do I need recognition? Can I just cheerfully do what God has for me to do, even if the rest of the world just sees nothing? And that's hard. I, anyway, afraid that was one I needed there really bad. They're legalistic in thought and practice. Now, you know that word legalistic is something that gets thrown all over the place in Mennonite circles. And it's something to definitely be considered of. But you know, uh, if I was to boil down what Christ was saying here in my own words without just a lot of extras, it would be that we become concerned. We become very concerned and very careful about making things look right rather than making sure they are right. Does that make sense? Very concerned about making things look right rather than making sure they are right. And that sort of goes on into some of the rest, almost goes right into the next point, actually. They're overly concerned about the outward while neglecting the inside. Very parallel points. Concerned about appearance. And you know this morning I need to be a bit careful here because I'm very glad I'm part of a church where we're concerned about appearance to some extent. It's not that I'm saying let's just forget about appearance. Let's just get rid of any dress guidelines, whatever else would be appearance related. At the same time, with being part of a group where we do stress appearance in some areas comes a very great danger that you or I will think that because we look right, we are right. And friends, that's not true. I know some people's solution seems to be, well, let's get rid of appearance guidelines or whatever you want to call those. At this point, I would say I still disagree with that because anyway, 
It's another whole subject by itself. But guess what? Just getting rid of the appearance doesn't fix the heart either. So we're sort of stuck in this one way or the other, and I'm okay with working where we are at. Don't take me wrong. At the same time, just because you know what clothes to put on Sunday morning, just because you know where to sit in church, just because you know how what thought to share in Sunday school, just because you know what to say as you come through the council room before communion does not mean you're an authentic Christian. Don't fool yourself. Unless you're willing to stop and look intensely into the attitudes and into the, what shall I call it? The attitudes and the motives of your heart and to just lay them out before God. God, really, why is this important to me? Really, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to buy that? Why do I want to make this? Why do I want to own that? Why do I want to be involved over here? I'll tell you, and what's scary to me is a fake can do a really good job of being a copied check and of pretending to serve God under the guise of doing what he wants to do. And I've seen it over and over, and it's one thing when I see it in other people, it's a little worse when I see it in myself. Is there, friends, is there something in my heart, in my life, ask yourself, I'll try to deal with Joe here, that's really hindering God's work? Because I know so well how to put the right clothes on, and I hope I, you understand I'm talking much more than clothing, but I know so well how to look, I know so well what to say, that I somehow think I'm going to get away with being less than sincere. Moving on to the fifth one, this one is critical of others. While they do the same or worse, that would be there in verses 29 through 36. Let's just read one or two verses there. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been bartakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So you hear you had a group of people that said, if we would have lived back in Isaiah's day, if we would have lived back in Amos's day or whoever, Jeremiah, we would have not put him in the pit. We wouldn't have had him sawn asunder. We would have stood up for truth, and we would have been there with him. Yet guess what? This was the very generation that crucified Christ. I don't even know how to write notes on some of this, and now I feel pretty vulnerable trying to say what I want to say. But I am very, very concerned, first of all, for myself. That the very thing that I possibly look at and despise or question in someone else perhaps is the very thing the very area that I'm worst in. It makes me think of years ago, not in this church, was working with a church brother on, a, anyway, some relational issues. And uh, he told me something interesting, and I think maybe it comes in here. He said, uh, I had another brother come and uh, 
share a problem with me he had, and he said, I couldn't believe my ears because the very thing he was saying was his problem. Now, I've never quite been sure who was at fault there, and I'm probably going to let God sort that one out. But many, many times, the problems I pick up with in others have some connection to a problem in my own heart and life. And I'm not saying this in an effort to make you quiet and not approach me about something in my life. If I have a need, come tell me. I'm just saying don't be blind and realize that as I have a need in my life, so probably do you. And be open to what that is. Especially this thing of critical. Uh, I guess I have it's something that's really something I want to work on in my own life. And I think sometimes I pick up a bit in others. I want to tell you, friend. If you're here this morning and other people can rarely to ever please you, if they, when they do their best, you always could have done a bit better, I think you've got a problem that's down at the bottom of that list. And I think maybe you had better go home to your closet and ask God to help you see yourself. I know how it is. I'll just be vulnerable, I guess. So often you look at what others do a bit skeptically to a bit critically I don't like that word critical it's not something I would do but I have decided that for myself if it really takes Joe to make a success in something I think we've got a problem and I think that problem is me I'll stop there okay looking at the list of the deceived maybe I'll bit I probably at least naturally tend to be a bit more gentle with this list, perhaps, than the hypocrite list. Because sometimes very sensitive people, I think, fall in the deceived list. And I don't say that unkindly. And I had a scripture I wasn't sure how much to turn to. Why don't we turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 2 and 4. For the first one here, Romans 10, verse 2 through 4. Paul talking about the Jews, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, or we could say deceived, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is at the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Excuse me, I think I read. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. I'm a little bit afraid, maybe I feel a little vulnerable this morning in saying this, because I'm afraid you'll think I'm anti our culture or anti our church, and I am not. But I would say that with our emphasis, I sort of shared some of that already, on appearance, with our emphasis on doing, it becomes so terribly easy for us to take the step in our, not necessarily in our theology, because we probably say it right, but in the way that we live, that we serve God to somehow gain something with Him. And friends, that is not how it works. 
If we do that, we're exactly in the same place that the Jews were in trying to establish our own righteousness. You know, somebody trying to earn or deserve salvation does not understand the gift of love. They make it something that they do. And again, this is probably a big subject all by itself. But let me say it this way. Love is something that has to be given to you. You cannot earn love, so to speak. If the love I give is earned by you, it's not really love. It might be recognition or something. You can take it in any human relationship. I think we somewhat understand that. You know, love between husband and wife is precious, but if either one tried to earn the other's love, that'd be a little discouraging. It would not make for a good relationship. Sure, yes, I have expectations and I have perimeters for my daughters to live their lives as a parent where I expect them to obey. At the same time, when they disobey, that discipline is not coming because I don't love them anymore. It comes because I love them and I want them to see the importance of following the rules that we're given. Love, such a precious gift. And so life-changing when you accept it. I'll go on. To the deceived, they're proud. And maybe I have to be a bit careful here. I use the word self-righteous up there. I don't know that we like either one. But I would again suggest it's a problem I have and perhaps you have. You remember that a Pharisee there praying before God, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men are. I don't know what all he said, extortioners, covetous, and adulterers, and all the whole list. And then he says, even like this publican over here. Again, uh, it's a little one that's a little hard for me to say here. See if I can get it out right. I'm so thankful that we're clear that our heritage, our background does not make us better people. We readily know that and we can snap it out. But friends, I want to tell you something. As I've related to people in our churches in a pretty bald spectrum, not talking just our church here by any means, I run into an attitude of that we would never say it, but we live our life that we're just a little bit better than some other people. You know what I mean? Some just aren't quite as good. Some just aren't quite as acceptable. Some aren't. And okay, I understand that uh, some people are harder to relate to. Some people aren't given the gifts others are. But at the end of the day, if I pick and choose my friends, based on the human tendency, the, human, the way that we as humans value people, I will probably be missing the people that could benefit me the most, don't you think? Because guess what? What do we look for? As a human, what do we look for? I've been told, and I, 
I'm trying to be, I, I'm serious, but I'll say this somewhat in a light tone. Uh, who was telling me that? I think it was a Bible school teacher of all things. Uh, he made the comment that, uh, I think it was said that ladies like a fellow that either has, looks good or has money. And uh, this fellow told his wife this, and she's like, well, sure, it'd be nice if you'd have at least one. Uh, So, ladies, I trust you're not that shallow. I know we guys aren't, aren't we? Are we? Do I value somebody? Do I value somebody's spiritual counsel when it looks like they're a success financially? Do I rate people based on how they either think like I do or don't think like I do. It's very easy to fall into. And I just challenge myself, how do I look at people? Do I have any touch of pride as I look at the blessings that God has showered upon me and think, oh, I just got it together. And it's something, pray for me. I don't know, I don't want to, hopefully it's not something that's rampant in my life, but I do. Sometimes just feel a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar, that's terrible to say, but it is. When your life is going good, seems like things come together for you, it's hard, it's awful hard not to feel that somehow you did this and to just realize it's all just God's gift to me. I've, I'm nothing, I can do nothing. And if God has given me some gifts that have helped me in life, well, praise him. I still doesn't come back to Joe's goodness or greatness at all. Talking fairly blunt, bear with me. But something I want to work on in my life. Okay, three. In the deceived, they are weak in the word and heavy on feelings. That's something, I guess, also very heavy on my heart as I watch not necessarily, again, specifically this church, but the broad spectrum of people we deal with. I, see, I think I see a lot of this happening. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at uh, verses 3 and through 7 and then 12. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, or though I live in this body, we do not war after the flesh. I don't, I'm not fighting a physical battle. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, of this flesh, of this life, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Uh, going back to verse 5 there. Casting down imagination means casting down arguments. Verse 6, and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on the things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. Verse 12, for we dare not make ourselves of the number who can or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. I think this, 
this thing of depending on our feelings more than just totally immersing ourselves in God's word maybe comes out in two sort of paradoxically opposing extremes. There are those who cling to a form and it becomes all about how things are done, when things are done. And it's partly because they find the security, a feeling of security in just making sure everything stays the same, always. Maybe that's a little strong, but you get the point, right? Then you have others on the other side of the spectrum, in the other ditch perhaps, who claim the Spirit's leading when they're serving self. Have you ever seen that? And again, I don't want to speak critically, and I'm happy to let God be the final judge on some of these things. But you know, I have yet to meet someone who left disobedience to God's word. Are you with me? They're probably still professing Christian, but they're taking off the veiling or losing non-resistance, whatever it is. I've yet to find one of those people that's taking those steps who says that, yeah, I'm doing the wrong thing. Sometimes you have people go out and live in sin or something. I'm not, but most of them, by far, the people that leave our type of churches are doing it because God told them. You ever notice that? And God has told some people the most amazing things. And like I said, I let him be the judge. After all, at least they didn't say Joe talked to me. So, you know, I try to remember what I said. Sometimes maybe I don't. But God, I figure, has a pretty good memory. He can take care of himself. At the same time, if God is telling you something that's different than what in here, what's in here, you have a problem. Right? I'm not against, I think maybe as Mennonites, we are perhaps a bit weak in letting the Spirit speak to us, in being open to what God has for us, especially if it means just changing my schedule or being willing to do something that I really didn't want to do. That's fine for the Spirit to lead you then. But if it's the Spirit's leading you away from God, away from obedience, trust me, that's not from God. It can't be. How did Christ say, can a kingdom divided against itself stand? Of course not. The answer is, of course not. Be careful. Feelings are great. Feelings are wonderful. But they're not how I determine whether I'm a Christian or not. There's people today, probably sitting here, who feel they're not a Christian because of some struggle in their heart that they're trying to fight. Keep fighting, brother, sister. You may be where God wants you. He just have a journey in front of you. Then there's others who feel just fine. And again. That's not how you decide whether you're authentic or not. I could probably, made me think of Frank Agbenail, um, when he was flying, you know, he could put that uniform on, and I think he, as good an actor as he was, he probably actually felt like a pilot. Did it make him one? No. When he was given the opportunity to fly, he hit autopilot. Why? Because he didn't know how. You can feel something all day long. It don't make any difference. I don't know, I've fooled enough with flying, I think I could, I feel like I could fly a plane in a pinch. But whether I could or not, I mean, without crashing, I have no idea. You got what I'm saying? Feelings are great, but don't try them out. Don't determine your Christianity by them. Okay, last, and sort of building on what we had is they trust in themselves. I was going to turn to Philippians 3, but we'll let it. You know, here's the strange thing, is some people trust in themselves, they trust in their understanding. I think young men, 
Sometimes we are tempted to trust in the ideals or what we think should be. We think things through, at least some of us, and we think, ah, this is how it should work. And uh, then as you get a little older, you start trusting in your experience. You think, well, this worked this way. Did you all notice how uh, those of you who were planning meeting uh, Wednesday night, how, I mean, we had a great meeting, right? I'm not having any problem with the meeting, but you notice how there was some differing ideas? Where'd that come from? It came from somewhat from experience, right? Ideals and experience, somewhere between the two. Sometimes a combination. And so when you're my age, you, you try both, and it really gets you confused some days. But uh, so young fellows, they like to think, oh, well, this is how it should work. And, you know, the Bible says this or doesn't say this, so therefore. And the older fellows there, well, I've tried that, and that didn't work, so this is the way. And then you, anyways. You know, both of them, if I can just be blunt, are ways of trusting ourselves. I'm not saying we need to share thoughts, we need to share ideas, but finally my experience is not some total of wisdom. In fact, maybe my experience was an isolated case of stupidity. Who knows? And yours, even you want to do it right, exactly what looks stupid to me, maybe that is the best way. We just need to try, try 2.0 like they do in computers. Huh? Um, I don't know. But don't trust in ourselves. And here's the strange thing, if I can say it, is... Um, sort of brought it fresh to my mind as an individual was really struggling with trusting God for their salvation recently that we were privileged to relate to. And, um, you know, when if you've confessed your sins, how does he say? If we've confessed our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us for sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I've done that, what is the next step? Isn't the next step trust that God knows how to do what he said he would do? But when you believe fear... Guess what? Really, fear is trust in what I feel and see more than that I just trust God to keep his word. That's what fear comes down to. And I don't say that unkindly, but finally it needs to be laid down. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. Okay, enough on fakes. Let's go to authentic. I think maybe my list is too long and I don't know. I was trying to figure out what are some things that are really, really hard to fake in the Christian life. And so, bear with me, but surrender. I don't know. Surrender is so little fun, at least the times that I've had to do it, but it's been so good for me that I've come sort of reached the conclusion that it's pretty hard for somebody that's not authentic to really do it. I'm not saying you can't fake it to some extent, but surrender. I remember so well, especially... You know, not so many years ago, I was wondering what God had for me in life. Sometimes I'm still wondering, but uh, that's another story. And uh, things, things, plans, hopes, dreams I had didn't always go the way I thought they should. And, oh, anyways, I remember I was at this uh, program, and somehow it just built up on me that night for a number of reasons. And I just, I was back there. And I don't know, usually I can control my emotions somewhat, but that night about got too much for me some of the songs and stuff, and I finally went way out back, and there was lots of people there, but I got away from them all, this was, and uh, I just cried out to God, and I finally told God, you know what, you can just have it all, I just want to be willing to be and do what you want me to be and do, and somehow, I wish I could tell you I've always kept that, but I haven't, it's not easy, sometimes Joe starts owning things again, and then we got to go back to round whatever it is, but you know what? Surrender. True surrender. Just telling God, here it is. Here's how I feel about it. I don't know that I can change it, but I just let go. It's not mine. 
It's probably the hardest thing, I don't know, it seems like one of the hardest things a human being can do. But I'm going to say it's one of the best, and I don't know how to fake it. It seems like there's some things in surrender that if you have been faking it, you probably find out, right? I think God has made true surrender such an amazing thing that when you really, really do it, you about can't fake it. You know, when you're really surrendered, friends, I'll tell you something that I've discovered about myself in a surrendered state, that is, not saying I'm always there because I struggle, is but there's no hardness in my life, right? No sharp corners, no hard edges. I'm surrendered. It's about what God wants. And I've noticed something strange in human relationships is when I find hardness, when I really need to tell somebody a thing or two, when I really need to set something straight, when I've stopped and considered, somehow I've found that there was a lack of surrender in my life at that point. That's something that sort of scared me. No walls. I'm not saying there's no discretion, don't take me that way, but there's no walls. There's nothing that Joe's hanging on to that you can't come talk to him about, and he won't try to. Anyway, you get it. I'll stop. Let's go on to the next one is love. Whether it's loving God or loving others, love is awful hard to fake. You can fake liking someone, right? But I don't know that you can fake really loving someone. Not an agape, not in a self-sacrificing way where you lay down your life. First of all, we need to love God, of course. And I had some verses there that we'll let go. But probably, I've again seen many, many times in our churches where there's problems, issues. Where if, well, let's just do this. If I'd walk to any of you guys, I would say, you love God, of course. I mean, none of us is dumb enough to say we don't love God. I mean, we know. Okay. So how do you know you love God? I don't know what you say. I have personal devotions. I want to walk with God. I try to live for him. I try to, you know. You want, I think, uh, if we go to 1 John, over and over he tells us there's two things that show our love for God is obedience to God's commands and our love for our brother. It's almost what that whole book is about, more or less. I don't know about you, but have you ever wished that the brothers and sisters that God put in your life would just be a little better? And I'm not grumbling about you. Don't take it this way. I'm just being, you ever sort of thought, well, maybe started at home with your siblings. I don't know. It seems like sometimes siblings are the first thing God uses to teach you some things sometimes. You just love them. Well, some days, you know. Some days. Um, love. I think God, one of the reasons that I very strongly believe that, you know, if I'm in a prison somewhere and can't, that's one thing. But I firmly believe that everybody who can, should be, will be part of the church, a church, is partly because of this thing of love, because I can claim to love God all day long. And what's my test? Very minimal. But if... I now got to deal with you, and you're just having an ornery streak like Joe does some days. Guess what? I have a real test for my love. It's not fun. It's not a party, but it's what I need. 
To love like Jesus. Uh, real quick, I'm going to tell you one other book. Uh, somebody had handed me a book. Wanted me to read it and see what I thought about it. It was a young man that grew up in a very troubled Mennonite home. And the, the, the author almost makes the thing that all Mennonites gossip. And I don't know if there's another book that I haven't read yet, so maybe I need to give some grace. But they make some very valid points. At the same time, they, to me, they are coming across somewhat negatively. They tried to appreciate some things, but then they were pretty heavy on what they didn't like in the setting. And yeah, basically it said that all Mennonites, especially the ones, the more they obey, the more they're concerned about obedience was almost the thought that was given, the more they gossip. And I've been blessed by you, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you, it's not that I'm thinking that you are the world's worst gossiping bunch that I've ever seen. You're not. But let's keep it that way. Gossip is a terrible thing. And if you want to rate sins high on a list, I know I've discouraged that already, and I still do. But I really think we ought to put gossip right there with adultery, if you want to say it that way. If you're going to put them up there, put it, make it serious. Because I'm not saying I've totally achieved this, but one of the goals in life is not to say something about someone to someone else that I'm not willing to tell them themselves. And I've done it. Now, I don't know. It hasn't always seemed very wise. Now, some people don't always like when I tell them what I see in their life. Um, but that's still my goal. I'd rather have you mad at me and feel free than uh, if, if something needs said, it needs said to the person or to the people responsible, not to some other person. Okay, I uh, didn't realize this was going to take me near this long. I'm sorry. Um, three, they obey. First John, again, I just mentioned that one. Four, they're humble. Now, you can fake humility to some extent. <clears throat> But finally, at the end of the day, uh, who was that when we were asking the sign of an authentic Christian that the thought was given, put him under pressure? You know, humility's a little bit that way. If uh, somebody's commended or something, they don't have a humble heart. That pride uh, comes out. I was terribly embarrassed about this one time. But I guess I had pride in my life. I don't know what else to say. But I'll just tell you the way it was. As, as far enough in the past, I feel a little bit safe here. But no, uh, I'd done a job for an individual in Jonesboro, and it was back when I was doing most of my work. I might have had one or so helping at the time. And uh, the job went pretty well. It really did. It came together good. And as the lady was paying me, she was sort of, she was a very expressive lady, and so she was just gushing about this job. And uh, oh, it felt good. You know, it did. And uh, then she handed me the check and sort of walked off saying, oh, you're really feeling perky now, aren't you? And I felt pretty stupid, honestly. Uh, I don't know whether I showed something or not. I still don't know to this day. But remember, like I said, if, if it was a good job, thank God for that. Oh, uh, fifth, they're thankful. I've been amazed in my own life how much thankfulness is, plays a role in continuing to grow in Christ. It's something I didn't realize for years. But, and I think maybe we're pretty thankful here. I don't know. But I think one problem we have is we go to the closet and thank God for everybody, and we forget to thank the people. And I would suggest just thank the people in your life. Uh, it's, it's done a lot for me on days when I was discouraged to have a thankful brother or sister just mention this. Uh, like I said, maybe I'm more that way. I probably I seem to maybe be that way. And I'm not necessarily saying now in a way of needing recognition, but just to tell people thank you, thank you for this. Okay, sixth, they forgive. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. To bring this down, we can show others by example how to be an authentic Christian, but we cannot do it for others, even those nearest and dearest to us. And I've wondered if perhaps this is one way that we as conservative Mennonites sometimes are tempted to cheapen the Christian life. Of course, any Christian parent longs for their children to follow Christ, absolutely. Yet, guess what? We may not minimize or hide the cost of, that, of what the decision, the cost of that decision. If we're going to help our children make a clear choice for Christ, we have to help them count the cost. And I'll just, I guess I'll just tell you again, one of the burdens I have in relating with some other churches and groups, and here, is I sometimes fear we have a generation of young people, not all of them, I'm not trying to say that, but who somehow view serving God as fairly easy, fairly smart, fairly wise, and it is wise, bear with me, but not in men's wisdom. I want to tell you again this morning, serving God is the absolute hardest thing you can do. Paradoxically, living for self is the absolute hardest thing you can do too. Do you understand me? But serving God is not the easy way out. It's not the, the path of roses at all. It's hard, hard work. Let's not hide that cost. Let's encourage an embracing of the cost of serving Christ. Have we attempted to lower the cost so that our children, so others we love, do what we want them to do, rather than just facing them with the cost of just total surrender to God? What would be the result of that if we are? Okay, back to Hadleyburg, and then I'll finish. Hadleyburg. <clears throat> they had this vaunted reputation based on nothing more than untempted pride. So one day, they made themselves an enemy, and this enemy, that's a long story. You listen to the story if you want to get it all. But he thought and he thought, and finally he came away to trick these people. And he had somebody that died. There was somebody that had passed away that was quite a bit different than the rest of the town. And he created a story, basically, where only the person that had died, the person doing the test, and one other person in this town would know what was said. And he created a test. And there was a tremendous amount of money for the person that had said the right thing. And so, guess what? He, so he put this test out for the town. And uh, so everybody got to thinking. So there was, I think, 19 or 20, what they called the, ooh, the estimable people in town. And uh, so all 19 or 20 started thinking, and the harder they thought, the more they thought they remembered maybe saying something. And so till it was all said and done, every last one of those 19 people came up with something that they had said that they hadn't said. And they put it in a sealed envelope, and they had a public meeting because everybody's going to see how upright and uh, in, incorruptible these people are. And so they have this meeting, and they pull out the first envelope, and they read it, and the fellow says, the words that I said to so-and-so was this. And so he stands up, starts making a speech. Well, other people are like, whoa, I mean, we said this. Anyway, here all the whole town was involved in trying to get money for the good thing they had said that they had never said. Can you imagine? And I guess my um, 
question is, you know, if I'm really authentic, sometimes I may not remember what I said, but I will know whether it matches with my life or not. And where really are we? What marks does my life show? If my neighbor was describing me to you, what would he say? How amazing it would be if he would say, Joe's a follower of Christ. Why don't we kneel forward for prayer?